Podcast One production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Welcome back. I'm Adam Shand and this is The Trials of the Vampire. In episode one, I laid out the bones of this bizarre and complex tale. Let's recap before we move on. A male prostitute named Shane Chartres Abbott visits a female client and apparently the sex goes horribly wrong. She's brutally raped and bashed and her tongue is almost ripped from her mouth, possibly with a pair of pliers. To add more spice, Shane claimed to be a 200-year-old vampire, according to the victim. Shane denied any involvement, claiming the victim warned him he would be killed that night as part of a snuff movie. But he was shot dead before he could tell that story in court. Years later, a hitman claimed that he pulled the trigger on Shane with the connivance of corrupt police. But there are grave doubts over that story and it's quite possible that Shane's killer is still at large. Meanwhile, Shane's name has receded into the annals of the bazaar as the vampire gigolo. Number 22. Shane Chartres Abbott. A male prostitute who claimed to be a vampire, Shane was an Australian murderer. No, he wasn't actually. Who loved to drink people's blood and eat their tongues. He himself was eventually killed by a victim's friend. That's not what the court found. There's so much myth, so many lies woven into the fabric of his story, Shane bears no resemblance to the man people knew. In this episode, we'll reclaim the man behind the headlines. I need to understand how Shane ended up in the sex industry and what kind of prostitute he was. I mean, why would a person with no history of violence suddenly lose his cool, savagely rape his client and try to tear out her tongue? My experience tells me there are always clues in the family background. Shane's father was a highly unusual man and sometimes violent. Shane once claimed that his father had sexually abused him. Might that help us understand the explosion of violence and debauchery that allegedly happened in room 307 of the Hotel Seville? There is a precedent for something like this in the family history, another moment of madness which you'll hear about soon. For three generations, Shane, his father and grandfather were on a spiritual journey. Eventually, all realms would open to them to explore, from the supernatural to the physical to the sexual. But it came with a steady moral decline, a loss of faith, a deception of self and those around. Some say that when you believe in everything, and nothing in particular, then you can go for anything, which is exactly what happened in Shane's story. It doesn't make him guilty of rape, but it certainly leads him to that hotel room with Penny. Shane's character, forged in his upbringing, has to be a clue. Sonny Naidu was Shane's closest friend. He saw no hint of darkness or cruelty. Rather, there was a lightness about Shane, an acceptance of his own vibrant sexuality. Well, he was extremely non-judgmental from a sexual perspective, and he was very, very open-minded. So he never talked about relationships in a way that would imply that he... um, felt like he had ownership. You know, people say, that is my girlfriend or that is my wife. Or uh, He was very sort of free, you know, and uh, there was no jealousy, no envy. It was just, he was very, very free in the way he looked at these things. 
Right, because ultimately, I think his personality, from what I've been told from numerous people, is one of wanting to please people. Oh, definitely. There, there was no darkness in him, right, that, that I saw. I never saw anything like that. All I saw was a really positive, generous, friendly person. And yet you have to deal with and, and try to reconcile the media image of this dark, gothic vampire character who did this terrible thing and and you know how does this how does that sit with you the person you knew oh not very well at all i just thought it's all it's all bullshit and it is you know the way they dramatized it and accentuated this um this darkness to to grab people's attention i mean let's face it that's what it was all about it was a it was a story uh and you know none of it was true in none of the aspects of what they attributed to characteristics of his personality were true. None of them. Shane was exposed to alternative ways of life from an early age, just like his father, who'd grown up in a family immersed in matters of the occult. But he seemed to have quite a lot of admiration for his father. He looked up to him, maybe as a role model or maybe as... I don't know. It seemed to be more than just a a father-son relationship in the sense that, like, from a spiritual point of view, there seemed to be more to his father. Sonny says Shane revered his father, but at the same time knew little about him. Not surprising, as you will see, Frank Chartres Abbott was a product of his own creation, part of a family tradition of showmanship and myth-making. He didn't know how old his father was. He said that a few times. He goes, I don't know. No one knows how old how old he really is. Almost implying that there was some uh, something more to his longevity than yeah, uh, right, right. a biological thing. Yeah, yeah, there was a definite, the implication was there. It's 1976, and we're on top of Mount Burrell in the nightcap ranges of northern New South Wales. Inside a ramshackle house in a clearing in the tropical forest, Frank Chartres Abbott is telling his young son Shane a bedtime story. I managed to find original audio tapes of the stories Frank told Shane as a kid. It was late on Christmas Eve and Billy had long been asleep. He went to bed early because he wanted the night to pass quickly. His dreams buzzed with all the wonderful presents he would find under the Christmas tree. Biggles was sitting on a chair looking out of the window. Woof, 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 he barked. Woof, 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 woof. He barked again. Billy sat up. What are you barking at? He yawned and dragged himself out of bed and went to see for himself. Goodness gracious me, it's Santa Claus's sleigh. It stopped right outside our house. Well, uh, said Biggles. Biggles was the family's blue healer, and the character Billy was actually Shane. Frank had dreamt up a series of adventures. Billy and Biggles meet a mermaid. Billy and Biggles take a ride to outer space with aliens. Or this one, Billy and Biggles help out Santa. Could we help? Asked Billy. Oh, asked Biggles. There was always a happy ending with Billy and Biggles home safe and sound from their exploits. Granddad, your tells a good story. Billy looked at Biggles, winked and laughed. Shane's father was a gifted storyteller. In fact, I've discovered that he fabricated much of his own life story. He wasn't French at all, as he claimed, and his name wasn't Chartres Abbott, but simply Abbott. More of that soon. In later years, he lived in a kind of perpetual story time, in which his imaginings became real the more he told them. He recorded scores of stories and turned them into talking books. I'm often asked, what inspired me to be a teller of tales? Well, I'd often come home late of a night and... No sooner had I climbed into bed, my kids would be jumping all over the bed. Tell us a story, tell us a story, tell us a story. 
a story at two o'clock in the morning? Why not? You just tell Mummy one. That's not true. But I do like to add some humour to most of my writings. Shane's grandfather, Arthur Frank George Abbott, and his brother, Charles Edgar Abbott, were born in Melbourne in the late 19th century to Charles and Emily Abbott. In 1926, a new modern office block was established at 165 Collins Street in the city. It was financed by a leading local family to house their growing business, assembling and selling Remington typewriters, which became known as Chartres Remingtons after the family business, Chartres Business Services. Other organisations rented space on the lower floors, and in 1934, the Abbott brothers began advertising a new spiritualist church on the first floor above the Wild Cherry Cafe. It wasn't long before Frank Abbott began calling himself the Reverend Frank Chartres Abbott, but only when he was out of Melbourne on his spiritual missions. The brothers offered insights from beyond, conducting seances and other occult rituals at Chartres' house. They called up the spirits for free, the tea service that came with the show cost a shilling. Perhaps I'm being unfair to Frank Abbott, calling him a con man and a charlatan. He thought of himself as a spiritual healer. He was once a male nurse in a lunatic asylum, and there he became convinced that insanity was frequently caused by evil spirits, and that he could remove those evil spirits from people. These exorcisms, he performed as many as 30 in a week, were apparently sanctioned by God. Or so he told a newspaper in 1947. I became interested in spiritualism about 25 years ago when I witnessed a hypnotist experiment. He transferred the mind of a medium into the body of a bird and told the bird to fly from Perth where the seance was being held to Melbourne. Through the medium, the bird gave a commentary of his flight. To further prove his powers, the medium told the bird to go to the home in Melbourne of a sceptical detective who was present at the seance. The bird described the detective's house and gave him a message from his parents that convinced me that there is a spirit world. Last week a woman came to me and said frequently a strange feeling came over her and she wanted to kill her husband and children. She was possessed of evil spirits. I talked to her for an hour and banished them. The charge was only ten and six. Sunday Sun and Guardian, 4 November 1947. In 1924, around the time of the Birdman seance in Perth, a boy was born, William Francis Foster Chartres Abbott, Shane's father. Just who Frank's mother was is more problematic. None of the family we spoke to knows for sure, and we don't have a birth certificate. What I do know is that Frank claimed his birth year was 1916, when in fact, he was at least eight years younger than that. Shane's half-brother Kim explained the discrepancy. As a young man, Frank teamed up with his father and they worked together on the spiritualist hustle. At times, Frank Jr. passed himself off as the older minister. Like, this would have been a duo act, and well, when he's not there, he probably filled in for him, you know. They had a falling out in the end, so it, it wasn't... I don't know how long it lasted, you know. So the, the older age would have been useful in that double act? Of course. The more I talked to Kim, the more family memories came back. Memories of violence in the home. You know, Mum said to this day he's he's a killer. He's killed his ex-wife, but didn't say how. He was violent because her brother was copper, so he uh, was protecting her, you know, from Dad, you know. So it hit the newspapers and all. It was like, you know, 
An article from Sydney's Sun newspaper from November 1953 tells the story. Pamela, then pregnant with Kim, had kicked Frank out of the house and the mother was awarded custody of two-year-old Penelope, no relation to Penny. Frank defied the order and absconded with Penelope from Sydney to Brisbane before being arrested a few days later. He handed over the baby, lamenting to police, that's what a man gets for wanting his child. Frank stayed in Brisbane and married a local girl, Heather Joyce Stevens, and five more children followed in quick succession. Frank was an entrepreneur and took on a series of varied occupations to support his brood. He was also a gambler, and a bad one at that, once losing 100 acres of land in outer Brisbane on a card game. Patina, one of his daughters with Heather, now lives in Melbourne. Yeah, he's a schemer, he's a con artist. And I suppose back then you had to survive, didn't you? You had no choice, you had to survive. There's no such thing as social security benefits or anything, so you had to do whatever you could possibly do to bring up your kids. And he had six kids, so I suppose you had to do what he had to do. Well, I can remember way back he started off, he was doing Plaster Paris. I must have been about three or four years old. And then he moved on to um, printing. He had this big printing press. Then he did sparrow proofing. Sparrow proofing. Sparrow proofing is where they take in Queensland take the sparrows out of the roof because they have lice and things like that. And then he had a make a match agency the last time. What sort of things uh, went on? It was a load of um, hogwash. And they run it in Roma Street. And if anybody back then would remember the make, it's called Make a Match in Roma Street and Mum and Dad run it and um, you go upstairs to this little grotty little office and he made up this computer out of a cardboard box and I did put elf all over it and a few knobs and said it was Rob the computer and everything was fed into Rob the computer and they come back your perfect match but this was way back in 19... Um, 70s, early 70s. So, um, yeah, people actually believe it. It's a load of bullshit because mum and dad just get the cards and look through and say, okay, John matches with Jewel or whatever, and that was it. So, Because some people have said it was sort of a, a, um, a thinly disguised brothel or something. No, it, it wasn't a brothel. Okay, we'll correct that now. Well, you're all kids there. There wasn't a brothel. No, mm. no, it wasn't a brothel. But I guarantee my mum and dad picked whoever partner they wanted when they wanted. Dad liked somebody, probably went off with her. Mum liked somebody, she went off with him. That's just the way it was. Mm. Matchmaking, yeah, and clairvoyant as well. You name it, he can do it. Mm. But he did speak different languages. Really? Yes. And what were those? Um, Well, obviously English, French, Greek, and I can't remember the other ones. He was a fluent bullshitter in four languages. Yeah, that that makes it very dangerous, doesn't (laughs) it? It does. (laughs) And women, women liked him by the sounds. Well, he had that uh, French suave about him where he used to, you know, he's a bit of a con artist and I suppose women did like him, yeah. But the home life in suburban Brisbane was far from idyllic. It was horrible. It was a nightmare. You never knew what was going to happen one day from the next. Like, when Dad comes home, you, you move all of the breakable things away. Like, you, don't, you move the iron, you move the jug anything breakable got to be moved because if it's not and he cracks the metal and it's going to get smashed. It's mm. just the way it was because mum and dad were violent they fought constantly just the way it was. Mum was too. Oh, she used to push him, push really? his button because I think that she liked the um, attention of being bashed and when he did bash her then after he felt guilty and started giving her attention. Just an attention thinking thing. Attention seeking. A lot of women do that unfortunately. You can put a woman in a room with... Um, 
99 gentlemen and one basher, woman basher, and she'll leave with a woman basher. Strange, isn't it? It is, it is, but I don't know why. It's just an attention-seeking thing. Maybe that explains why Heather never reported Frank's violence to the police. He'd thrown petrol over in the path and said her a light. He'd done lots of things to her. She never reported to the cops. Heather Joyce Stevens died in May 1973 at just 42. Her decline was swift and to most unexplained. She'd been a big, strong, healthy woman, that is, until six months earlier, Christmas Eve 1972, when the violence reached a very public crescendo, which I'll tell you about after this. It's Christmas Eve 1972, and a tragedy is unfolding. Oh, I never forgot. I hate Christmas. Yeah, it was awful. Christmas. So what happened? Well, I was leaving the house, and um, they had a, a, um, convi, a convi van panel van and um, they wanted me to go Christmas shopping and I get in the car and I was reversing it mum checked the letterbox found a card from my brother which said her name Stevens on it Patina says Frank was offended by this asking why Heather's brother didn't use her married name Chartres Abbott as they're driving down the street they start fighting I sit in the middle they pulled over Runcorn Station because we were living at Currabee at the time and dad reached over and punched her in the face broke she had two pairs of glasses and a sunglass over reading glasses and um, she jumps out of the car and I jump out too. And um, I run in, jump the fence to hide. But then he come back with the car and he ran her over. And then he ran her over again. He backed over her then? Yeah, twice. you got to make sure you do it properly. That's in his eyes. And I was screaming and saying, stop, stop, stop. And I ran up to the car and I begged him to go. The whole train was stopped watching. Nobody come to help. Nobody came to help? Nobody come to help. I said, please leave, please leave, please, please, please go. And I begged him to go and then he just took off and then I helped my mother back to... Um, she wanted me to hitchhike, but I didn't want to hitchhike because I was just too scared who was going to pick us up. Patina managed to get her mother home and then to hospital, but she had serious internal injuries. Yeah, she within um, a three or four weeks she become dreadfully ill. It didn't take long at all because he'd run her over twice and she damaged insides of her. She tried to do things, but she couldn't. She was driving taxis at the time, but she couldn't do what she was supposed to be doing because she was so ill. And then this one night she started hemorrhaging. We called the ambulance and she was taken to hospital. And uh, she died in the May, just after Mother's Day. So you hold your father responsible for her murder, effectively? Oh, of course he killed her. Patina says the official cause of her mother's death was kidney failure, but being run over by a combi van weighing 1,100 kilos months earlier must surely have been a factor. There's no doubt this was a criminal assault, if not attempted murder. But no one reported the incident until 1998, when Patina made a statement to the homicide squad in Melbourne, where she'd moved to escape her family. Her father was still alive and living in Casino, New South Wales. She wanted to see him punished before his death. I had to go right upstairs and get security clearance to go into the place. And I went in there and I was questioned by a couple of homicide detectives. And um, then they got back to me a while later and I said, what happened? And they said, oh, we went and knocked on your father's door. We asked him and he said he didn't know what we were talking about. And that's it? That's it. Police in Queensland and Victoria have failed to find any record of this report, but Patina is definitely sure she made it. I checked with Kim Abbott if he'd heard anything about this. There was a, a thing about that he escaped a murder or something like that. But he had this pass that haunted him, 
I don't know if it was reality or what it was. You know, but you know. Funny. Do you know anything about the murder? The incident referred to? No, not really. It was about a woman, one of his girlfriends. You know, one of his women folk. You know, during his lifetime. Well, I'll tell you a story that I heard, Tim. I told him what Patina had told me. It came as news to him. Uh, never heard that one. That's that's massive. That that hits the headlines. That one. So the omen's been over the family because of that as well. I suppose. Oh, yeah, if you want to call omens, uh, I, I already told you what I believe. After death, is, we're all light anyway. It's already proven we're light, but there's no hell just within yourself. So I mean, that, that's what my dad would be uh, carrying now and has carried it all the way, and we'll still be carrying. It wasn't long before Frank moved on after Heather's death. In fact, he turned up to his late wife's funeral with his secretary at the Make a Match agency in Brisbane. I'll call her Betty for legal reasons. And 18 months later, Betty gave birth to Shane. A baby girl followed Joanne after the family moved to Mount Burrell near Nimbin. Patina recalled her first meeting with Shane. First time I met Shane was when he was about three years old. He was living in Nimbin. They had a, um, a property in Nimbin, renting a property. It was an old house up on top of a hill. And I was going up to, my, my daughter was um, a baby. Shalina was um, nine months old. And uh, we went up there and I thought I'd drop in and say hello to him. So we dropped in then and he was living with and she just had Joanne. Joanne's probably about the same age as Selena. And, uh, yeah, the place was pretty bad. Pig was it? What's a, a pigsty? Pigsty, I knew we puked, you call it now, yeah. Yeah, really? Pretty bad, yeah. She didn't clean the house. Said she spent all day washing the nappies, but the nappies were pretty yellow on the line. And the cow walked through the house and did a big plomp in the middle of the hallway and get walking, you know. Don't worry about that, just walk around it, you know. So that was Shane and Joanne's first time? Yeah, and Ashley was living with him. My little brother was there as well. Mm. Mm. But Ashley wasn't allowed to go past the doorway. He had to go. He wasn't allowed in any of the rooms. He had to go straight out the side and straight into his bedroom. Why is that? Because of the strictness of my father. What was little Shane like? Well, he never, for the whole time we are there, I don't think they bathed him or washed him. His hair was sticking out like a bloody wildfire. And he wore the same pyjamas the whole time we were there, so. You must have been a bit appalled. I was. I certainly wouldn't put my baby on the ground. I held her on my lap and went, we were in the caravan, we stayed in the caravan, stayed there two days and had to get out of there. Mm. It was absolutely horrible. The marriage broke up in 1982 when Shane was eight and he went to live with his mother in Lismore, a rural centre an hour's drive south. He would not see his father again for a decade. Life wasn't much better with Betty and I'm told he left home at age 13 after a falling out with his mother. He drifted around Lismore for a few years, living on his wits and the kindness of friends, of which he had many. He formed a relationship with a childhood friend, Nadine Woolley, and she fell pregnant when Shane was just 20. The young father did the right thing and married Nadine before their son was born. Bettina again. So you didn't see Shane again for quite a few years? No, I didn't see him again until they come down here after he'd married Nadine, yeah. How did that happen? How did he get in contact with you? Well, my brother knew what's up there, Ashley. He went up there and he was contacting Shane and, and Ashley come and he said to me, oh, Shane's coming down. Can he stay here for a while? Shane and Nardine got married and they've got a little baby. And I said, oh, God, all right. I wasn't 100% happy with it because I already had a house full and I agreed to it, so they come and stayed here. When they arrived, what was your impression of them? Oh, just, well, when Ashley pulled up, he had my old Cresita wagon and it was piled high of bloody um, suitcases. It looked like bloody Beverly Hillbillies coming up the drive. And I thought, oh my God, what the neighbours going to think, you know. But never mind. 
you don't worry about neighbours think because half of them can't think anyway. So um, just let them inside and they both had their head shaved and they're very young looking. Head shaved? Why is that? Oh, some reason they shaved their head. I don't know, never really said. They seemed really nice people. Got on quite well with them. I just did the usual, made them a little, put the boys in one room and they had the middle room and uh, they stayed here for as long as they could and then we ended up getting them a place in High Point. I see. And I've heard that at that time, or at least prior to that, Shane had been a devout Christian and Nadine as well. No, I never knew anything about that. You didn't but describe? I know they were full vegetarian. They wouldn't eat any meat or anything like that. They are full vegetarian, very healthy looking, and um, they both looked quite good. Baby was well looked after. What kind of person was he? He was a very, um, oh, how can I say? He, um, Nadine usually ruled. She usually said what was going on. He sat back and yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and he was a very quiet sort of person. Oh, he did talk, but he wasn't, you know, violent, a bit of a no-ward a few times. Tried very hard to play the master of the house, but Nardin always seemed to, you know, females usually rule anyway. So and, females um, tended to put him in his place? Yeah, she, she'd, she'd put him in his place if he stepped out of line, no doubt about that. So you just had to raise your voice to him and he'd Oh, yeah, yeah, off. yeah, he'd back off very, very quick. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. He's always trying to please people. So, yeah, he was, all, he was all right like that. After a few weeks at Bettina's place, Shane and Nadine moved into an apartment at Maribyrnong in the city's north. They were on welfare and struggled to make ends meet. But Shane had a few clever ideas about supplementing his well, income, didn't he? Name. He went collected for the Salvation Army one time when it wasn't really time to collect the Salvation Army. It wasn't the Red Shield Appeal Day or anything? Red Shield Appeal Day, basically. And made up a little sign and went knock door knocking with a pillow slip. And he collected quite a bit of money, actually, about $250, $300. That was all in change. And, and I went over there and I said to Nadia, Where's bloody Shane? She said, oh, he's working. I thought, oh, he's got a job. She said, oh, not exactly. I said, what's going on? She said, oh, he's out collecting for Salvation Army. It's not Red Shield Appeal Day today. And she said, oh. And then she told me, I said, oh, God, the cop's going to bring him home, you know. Lo and behold, you know, he's just a dipstick to do it. Nadine was not a part of this little venture. Did he get charged? Yeah, he had to go to court, yeah. And um, anyway, they brought him home because he couldn't run with all his change from the bag, you know. So anyway, they brought him home and I knew the cops would be bringing him home. And he had to go to court and uh, I, I went and kind of like vouched for him saying that, OK, Shane, what we'll do is try to get you out of this, because he's my little brother, you know? Hmm. And I said, what we'll do is you turn around and you agree to really, 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 really collect for the Salvation Army on that day and collect good money for Salvation Army, that can be your punishment for what you did wrong. And he agreed to it and the courts agreed to it, no? Oh, well done. Oh, yeah. And did he, did he do it? Yeah. Oh, good. Now you told me you pocketed 30 bucks. <laughs> oh, the little shit. <laughs> you don't do that. It was just so wrong. You're like his mum, weren't you? But, but I was. I was probably mothering him, yeah. But I did with my little brother as well. But, uh, you know, that, what can you do? Mm. Lead the horse to water. You can't make him drink, you know. I could have smacked him out of the bloody head with that one, but... Hmm. Um, so he wasn't a person that was full of guile and cunning. He didn't lie well. No, he didn't lie well, and he, he wasn't a good con artist. He was a stupid con artist. He was silly in his ways, very, very silly. Do you ever see him be violent with Nadine? No, he wouldn't know how violent was. Really? No, he was never violent, no. He was mm. never violent with Nadine, ever. He was just a timid little boy. I see him with the baby sitting there, you know, with his little son. He wasn't violent in any way at all. 
not at all. I'm not quite sure what happened, but then they separated, and then my other brother started taking over, moved in with Nardine. Ashley. Mm. Yeah, right. Keeping it in the family. Obviously. As it were. <laughs> but oh I mean, God, yeah. sounds terrible. Well, you know, it's it's unusual history, that's for mm. sure. Um, but I guess in the same way as your father had that free and open attitude to sex, Shane seemed to have that as well. Well, maybe that's what they're growing up with, seeing that. Mm. I don't know what was thrown at Shane through his growing up days. I know that Ashley got a, told me a lot happened. Um, my dad used to bring girls home, women home, and stuff like that. Probably Shane had the same thing. I don't know. A lot of shame and scandal in the family, you might say. Shane and Nadine were both unabashed lovers of sex. Like what happened? You don't want to talk about it? No, you just tell you back off. I understand that Shane was already working as a prostitute in northern New South Wales before he came to Melbourne. Patina heard that Shane had turned to prostitution, but she never heard from him again. During the day, Shane was working at a marketing company, but at night he was Simon, a male escort. His younger sister Joanne also began working as an escort around this time using the name Cleo. Sonny Naidu met Shane when they were selling phone contracts door to door. He was very happy. Uh, very energetic, very affable kind of guy. After a while on the road, the pair became firm friends and Shane confided to Sonny that he was working in the sex industry, specialising in the kinkier end of the business. He was open about that as well. He'd always say it kind of with a smile. It didn't bother him. Whatever people wanted, it, you know, as long as it was consensual and no one got hurt, he was always happy to do it and happy to participate. Soon Shane was a full-time escort. Sandra Gibson was his counsellor and confidant for six months before his murder. Um... I think he's just a bit of a natural, really. Like, he didn't carry a lot of stress and anxiety that a lot of people in the sex industry often do. He just seemed very at ease. You know, there wasn't any um, perceptible uh, self-consciousness that, that a lot of people would have. Like, he was just very much himself, and what he did as an occupation was part of that. Shane was working out of an agency called Cloud9, as well as advertising his services privately under the name Simon in a newspaper called The Sporting Truth. Most of his clients were male, but he was a specialist in BDSM, a catch-all name for bondage, discipline, dominance, submission and sadism and masochism. And he took pride in these dark arts. No, that was his bent. You know, he, he enjoyed that. And the, and the thing is, with someone who does specialise in that, they only attract clients that are into that. The thing about BDSM is trust again, more so than any other area of sex work. Like, you must establish that trust. And it wasn't as if Shane was a fledgling to this. He'd been, you know, that was his um, preference. People who work in that area, um, I mean, yes, they're taking risks, but they do a lot of protective stuff and training. Shane was working in a legal industry, not some shadowy backroom operation, but still the job comes with risks. He could never know just what lay beyond the threshold when he knocked on a client's door. That was part of the thrill, in a way. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. It can be um, a beautiful excitement. Gives you bang for your buck, but then if you get something that's turns a bit dark or that is just totally unpleasant, 
Mm. Um, then the excitement's very quickly sucked out of it. I'm sure. Mm. But there is that ambivalence when you're standing at the door, yeah, I'd imagine, yeah, thinking, absolutely. which one is this going to be? Yeah. In the next episode of The Trials of the Vampire, we'll find out what happened behind the door of room 307 of the Hotel Seville in August 2002. I know for a fact Shane did this to me because he was the last person in the room. The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.